I grew up in a dairy farm in rural Wisconsin, and I remember when I was about 10 years old, uh, we had a, a particularly uh, strong winter and uh, high levels of snow, uh, unlike the, this last winter here in Minnesota. But I remember the, the snow drifts by our barn being really extraordinarily high. And then also by our, our milk house, uh, the drifts have gotten to a certain point that I, I just didn't recall being that high before. And one afternoon that winter, my sister Kim and I thought it'd be really cool to get on top of the roof of the milk house and do something risky. So somehow... We got to the top of the milk house. I don't know if it was a ladder or something like that. I was 10 years old. My sister was, was 12. And we're sitting on top of the milk house, which is, is not a very safe place to be. And we're, we're standing on the top of this roof here. And, and not too far from the milk house was this nice, fresh uh, bank of snow. It, the snow plow that came in our driveway kind of left a big pile there. And it wasn't right next to the roof. There's a little bit of a gap there, but it was kind of within jumping distance. And we thought it would be really cool to jump off the roof. When I got to the top of the roof, I realized something really quick. I'm afraid of heights. I still am. I have this deep phobia on heights. And we're standing on that roof, and my sister Kim is kind of egging me on. She's calling me chicken. She's calling me all these names. I'm like, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to jump off this roof. So she then jumps right into the pile of snow. And she's laying in the snow looking at me. I still remember this, laughing at me because I'm still on the roof there and just kind of shaking. And then finally, I just jump off the roof. And I remember landing in that snow. And being so exhilarated that I jumped in, that I overcame a fear, this phobia of heights. And I remember just kind of laying in the snow and being so excited that I jumped in. And that's kind of the sense that we have here in the book of Acts. These early Christians, if you have a Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. We've been in a series of teachings looking at the early church. And it's very much uh, this, this sense for the early church that they were jumping in. And, and it, it wasn't an individual thing. Uh, they weren't doing it by themselves, kind of like me and my sister. They were together. They were together jumping into something that was risky, something that was dangerous, something that they weren't exactly sure what was going to happen once they kind of jumped in. And we read in these chapters, these opening chapters in the book of Acts, reading about them jumping and, and, and taking risk and seeing what God is doing with, with it. Uh, we're in chapter 5 in the book of Acts. And before I, I read from that, I just want to mention a couple of things about the writer. The writer is a guy named Luke. He's a, phys, a physician uh, in the first century. And this is before medicine became a discipline, but he was a, a physician. And he's writing um, this book, and he wrote an earlier book, book called Luke. And between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, we have one-fourth of the New Testament in our hands. Luke is a very influential writer for us. Our understanding, your understanding of Christianity, of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and a large part comes from this guy named Luke. In the opening chapters, as, as Pastor Chad has preached on, is that we see these early Christians diving in. And last week, Chad talked about their prayer as they were kind of jumping in, as they were asking God for a greater boldness, a greater paria, a greater boldness to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So we pick it up here in chapter 5. And we're going to move it actually ahead to verse 17. In verses 12 through 16, we read about the apostles healing people, kind of like the ministry of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's working through them, and they're healing people, and, and they're attracting a crowd. And we pick it up here in verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. 
Verse 20, go, stand, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as he had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. Verse 22. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in the jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Why don't I focus on this, this phrase in verse 20? Stand. If you have a Bible, you can underline that or maybe write in your notes. Uh, but this, this word stand is very important for us. In chapter 4, as Chad taught about this boldness, this paria of the early church, this prayer request, is that this becomes expressed in this word stand, standing up, to stand. In fact, in the New Living Translation, I, I love this translation of verse 20. He said, go to the temple and take your stand. Tell the people everything there is to say about this life. The Greek word for this word stand is histomy. And this word is, is mentioned over 150 times in the New Testament. And over 50 times it's written by Luke. He uses this word. In many ways, it's a key word for him as he expressed this birth and growth of Christianity. It means to stand up, to, to put it into place, to stand in the presence of others, to stand up for Jesus Christ, to establish, to put in place. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and I in the 21st century as we think about taking a stand, this histomy? What does it look like for you and I in, in, in terms of uh, the neighborhoods of our lives? in the workplaces of our lives. What does it look like? So we see in Acts that this histomy is this, the sense of these early Christians willing to be identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's where we read about Peter and John and these early Christians that they, they, they move forward and, and they're willing to stand up for the name of Jesus Christ. So this prayer of boldness in chapter 4 in chapter 1, this, this sense of, of being a witness is being concretely and, and, and visibly expressed here in chapter 5 as they're standing up. Standing up and being identified with the name of Jesus Christ. I was at a coffee house not too long ago and I was sharing with a friend of mine who's an unbeliever. I was sharing about uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, talking about what it, what it, meant, what it means to have faith in Him and, and what it means to be saved. And, and I was asking him if he was willing, if he was willing to kind of take the step, to kind of leap, to stand up, to be identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm not ready for that yet. And I respected his response because he's a guy, when he makes a commitment, when he makes a stand, when he says something, He's 100% behind that. But yet we read about these, these folks here in the book of Acts 
a lot of people are saying, I am willing. I am willing to be identified with the name of Jesus Christ. Count me in. Hiss to me. I'm willing to stand up and be known for the name of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing that we see in Acts chapter 5. I want to ask you the question this morning. How about you? Are, are, are you ready to be identified with the name of Jesus Christ? Perhaps you're here this morning, you've been coming the last few weeks, and, and maybe the, this message of salvation, of hope in Jesus Christ, is beginning to sink in. And, and perhaps for you this morning, is that, that you're willing to take that step and, and jump in, and that you're willing to say, I, I am willing to be identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, can I, as I'm preaching, I would just encourage you to talk to God and say, God, I am willing. I am willing to be identified with the name of Christ. What does this mean to stand up? I think another thing it means, not only to be publicly, publicly identified, but it also means that they weren't doing it alone. Um, yeah, we see the community. We see the, the, um, the community of believers together, but we also see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 um, where Jesus says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses. So very much this, this um, truth around standing up is that they were being empowered by the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. The community group that Janiel and I are a part of has been discussing this Holy Spirit in our conversations the last couple of weeks as it relates to the book of Acts. Because when you go through the books, book of Acts, you can't help but see the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I think the Holy Spirit is one of the most, perhaps, confusing parts of the Christian faith, it seems. And it seems that the Holy Spirit kind of gets the short end of the stick. He's kind of ignored. He's perhaps viewed as the junior member of God. And we're not quite sure what to call the Holy Spirit. Is Holy Spirit it or he or, you know, how we address him? But suffice it to say, the Holy Spirit is fully God. And one of his primary roles, as we see in chapter 5 and later on, is to work in and through us to reveal the truth of Jesus Christ. The role of the Holy Spirit is to work in and through our lives, through our actions, through our words, through our strengths, through our weaknesses. The Holy Spirit works in and through our lives to share the truth to friends, to co-workers, uh, to family members, and a friend of mine just shared the story recently that he was kind of having an ordinary lunch on an ordinary day in his ordinary company. And he found himself in this extraordinary moment. And he and his, a co-worker were just kind of having conversation as they eat, they're eating their sandwich. And his co-worker began to ask about his beliefs. It was really surprising uh, to my friend. And despite the fact that my friend had really never talked about something private like faith, um, in a public uh, fashion, despite being scared stiff, despite his knees kind of knocking, sweating through his shirt, uh, he took a breath and he talked about his faith in a natural way. And he, and he told me, he said, Craig, it was the coolest thing. It was the coolest thing that, that God gave me the strength to, to kind of stand up in that moment. And he said, I, I can't believe that happened. But man, what an adventure. He's so moved by that. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 5, this, this sense of standing up is the, the work of the Holy Spirit empowering these, these early Christians and working in and through their lives 
to share about the hope and the salvation found in Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning that when you hear about, you know, sharing your faith, that kind of, uh, that's, a, that's a big step for you. That is something that is very risky in, in, in many ways, kind of jumping off the roof of the milk house. It's, it's kind of dangerous for you, it seems. But maybe for you, it's the step to actually perhaps pray out loud. That's standing up. Maybe, maybe it means to kind of pray out loud for the first time with your family or, or perhaps in some kind of uh, gathering. I remember the first time I did that in, in, outside of my family. And even inside my family, I didn't pray that out loud that much. I would, and I was a sophomore in college. I was 20 years old. And I was very shy. I was very introverted during college. Um, and I remember uh, at the church I was attending over in West St. Paul, there was a group of guys after a Wednesday night event, and I was invited to, to kind of be with them, and they thought it would be really nice for us to kind of pray together. And everybody took turns praying and kind of went, you know, one after another, and, and it, it came to me, and, and I was scared stiff. I, you know, my throat was dry. You ever get like that? You know, your throat's dry. You're not quite sure what to say. And I remember praying, and it's kind of like this sort of, out-of-body I'm, I'm kind of hearing myself. And I remember this messed up the prayer. I, I called God like, you know, dear sir. You know, it was like a meet the parents kind of prayer. You know what I'm talking, you know what I'm saying? Um, it was just, you know, and then I had, you know, theologically it was just like all messed up. I had Jesus on some mountain, the Holy Spirit on the cross. I mean, it was just like awful. And, and I was shaking and my voice was, was, you know, just up and down. And I remember after I finished my prayer, this guy that prayed after me, Earl Larson, this guy, this kind of veteran of the church, this patriarch uh, in his 60s, his prayer was for me. God, help Craig. Help him just to settle down. But I remember that. I remember taking that step to stand up, to hiss to me. That was a very important marker in my life. And, and maybe that's what it looks like for you is to take a stand like that and, and perhaps to risk it and to, and to pray out loud. And, and, and perhaps some of us have taken those steps and we kind of feel locked in or perhaps paralyzed because we messed up something. You know, one of the most influential quotes in my life was given to me 10 years ago. It was a quote by Winston Churchill. It stays with me almost every day. Success is never final. Failure is never, fa- is, failure is never fatal. It's courage that counts. Success is never final. Failure is never fatal. It's courage that, count, that counts. And that's a, that's, there's a lot of importance to that in, in terms of, of um, how we think about the Christian life. It's courage that counts. You know, just because we make a mistake, just because we blow something, it doesn't mean it needs to be fatalistic. And also the other side of it, just because something goes really well and perhaps we have, have experienced some kind of success in ministry, it's not final. There's always more opportunities. And we see that in, in Acts chapter 5. I like to move ahead as we think about what it means to stand up um, in chapter 5. Let's go to verse 41. Because this, this sense of histamy of being publicly identified with the name of Jesus Christ, um, also being empowered by the Holy Spirit to share, to live out uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, as they were doing that, we get to verse 41. 
the apostles left, left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. In your Bible, if you want to take a note, circle the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now, histomy means to take a stand, to actually um, to stand up in the face of others. And that's very much the story of, of Christianity in the first century. Because when it says that they're standing up for the name, that was a big deal back then. It was a big deal. It was a very dangerous time, a very risky time. Because name, this, this word name, was very significant. And that's why I do a little bit of a, a sort of cultural or historical backdrop in terms of what's happening here in the first century. Because Rome ruled the world, the known world, from Britain to India. And the only name that mattered during that time was Caesar. It wasn't Jesus Christ. It was Caesar. And even though in chapter 5 we, we see Peter and John and, and these early Christians kind of standing up sort of to the Sanhedrin, there was a larger opposition, a big shadow, ominous shadow, that they were standing up to, and it was Rome. It was Caesar. In last week's message, Chad discussed in chapter 4 of Acts, in verse 12, this verse, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But scholars believe that phrase didn't actually originate with Peter and these early Christians. Actually, Peter took this well-known phrase about Rome and transformed it. What was originally known during that time was this, there is no other name under heaven save Caesar Augustus by which we can be saved. So as we go into chapter 5, we need to understand that these early Christians and their courage, that they were pushing back and saying, no, no, there's a different way. There's a different way. Salvation is not found in Caesar Augustus. The hope and peace and prosperity is not found in Pax Romana, this sort of propaganda, this, this campaign during that time. They're pushing back and saying, no, salvation is found in Jesus Christ. They were standing up in a very dangerous time. As we, as we look at the Caesars, the first Caesar, Julius, and this is what is uh, an area of study called the imperial cult. Uh, Julius Caesar believed that he was God. And you see a picture of his bust. And when he died, the poets like Virgil, wrote that a star shot across the sky and that it was Julius ascending to the right hand of the throne of the gods. Now, Julius had adopted a son named Octavian, Augustus. And Augustus took this idea of Caesar worship because Julius actually kept it more of a, kind of a, a private uh, manner. Uh, but, but Augustus actually took it out in the public squares, in fact, to all the cities and towns in the Roman Empire. And they had coins minted like this one. And on the back side, it said that, that um, Augustus Caesar was God. So this phrase, there is no name under heaven save Caesar Augustus by which we can be saved. It was well known as a way of talking about um, the gods of the Caesars. And it actually communicated that people could gain in salvation and peace by believing in Caesar, actually worshiping him, singing to him. In fact, Augustus instituted something called the 12 Days of Advent. 
which were days given over to worship of the divine Son of God, Augustus. And they had youth choirs and they had hymns sung in worship of Caesar. This is very much out in the public. And if you were a person that was under the rule and reign of Rome, which is pretty much the known world, you're expected to do that. Later on, another of the Caesars, Domitian. And Domitian was actually the one who declared public war on the Christians. He had a choir of 24 people who would go before and after him as he walked out in the public singing this phrase, Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power. Okay, this is kind of the, the, the cultural fabric that we find our first century Christians living in, standing up. This is no small matter. These are dangerous times. And in, in fact, Domitian even had his wife only refer to him as my Lord and my God. Okay, here's some marriage advice. Guys, don't, don't do that. But the, the Caesar worship was very serious. It wasn't something trite, you know, something kind of right off to the side. This idea of, of uh, Rome and Pax Romana saving the people. It's dangerous times. I want, to, I want to note this. This is very interesting because the Romans were very smart and very crafty and they wanted to tie uh, this worship into practical ways. And they wanted everyone to participate in this Caesar worship. So they brought it to a place during the first century in a lot of the cities like Ephesus and, and others where almost everyone had to go to the marketplace. And the word for this is the Agora. And this is the place where people bought and sold goods. And if you wanted to enter into the marketplace, the mall, the grocery store, to buy or to sell, you first had to give an incense offering where you actually would bow down physically and declare Caesar as God. And you would give an offering to him and declare your allegiance to him. And there's a bunch of speculation on how the Roman authorities knew who gave the offering to kind of let them into the Agora. Uh, but a couple of scholars actually postulate that people were given an ink stain, a mark on their hand. It was a mark, in fact, that was saying, I believe that Caesar is king. I am willing, willing to be publicly identified with Caesar as Lord and God. There is no name under heaven by which we can be saved. Now, to many Jews and Christians, this Caesar worship was repulsive. And they soon referred to the Caesars as the beast. And this ink stain became known as the mark of the beast. And that's what you would receive to enter into the Agora. And these first century Christians are standing up and saying, no, there's a, there's a different way. There's a different way. We are histamine. We are standing up, putting into place the name of Jesus Christ. Caesar is not God. The Roman Empire is not the real thing. We believe in the risen Lord. In fact, one of the phrases that became sort of a, um, a recurring theme, kind of like a, an echo among these early Christians, as a way to remind themselves that our Lord and our God uh, came back from the dead. And these Caesars, they keep dying. There was this phrase, he is risen. And the other Christian would respond, he is risen indeed. It was said more than once a year. It was said on a regular basis as a way to remind themselves to have the courage, to have the hope that Jesus, our Lord and our King, came back from the dead. The tomb is empty. Now, imagine for a moment you're in the Agora. You're living during this time. 
what do you do? What do you do? Let's say you're a shopkeeper or a seamstress or a farmer of produce. And it wasn't like it was easy to follow in the way of Christ to be publicly identified with him. Perhaps, just imagine, you've accepted Christ as your Messiah, the promised king. You gave your life to him. And perhaps you recently began to meet with others to proclaim uh, that you're a follower of the way. You've been redeemed and saved. You gather together to sing songs, have meals, share your possessions. But you have a dilemma. On Monday morning, you make your way over to the Agora in the early hours of the day. And you see the place for the incense offering. What do you do? You have a family to support. You have to put food on the table for your kids. And maybe you haven't bought food for weeks and your kids are, are tired of potato this and a potato that. What do you do? Or maybe you make your way over to the public square and you notice everyone is, is worshiping the statue of Caesar, laying down offerings for his favor and blessing. And you notice everyone is doing it. your neighbors, the guy who lives down the street, and maybe even some of your family. What do you do? What do you do? Later on, there are some Christians in the city of Ephesus uh, who would offer incense to Caesar, bow down and declare him as Lord and God. They only did it so that they could keep their lifestyle. They didn't really mean it. They would, they would kind of tell their, their community, um, we're just, we're just kind of going through the motions. We, we believe in Jesus, but we, we just kind of do go through the motions of worshiping Caesar so that we can kind of sustain our livelihood. And they were called the Nicolaitans. And John refers to them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 15. He says this, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. And what John and these, these writers are saying is don't give in. Whatever you do, don't give in. Don't be like the Nicolaitans. Hiss to me. Stand up. Stand up for the name of Christ. Stand up in his name. Don't give in. Don't bow down to these counterfeit gods. Don't bow down before Caesar. Don't bow down before the Roman Empire. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. This is a beautiful story. It's a story of these early believers. This faith that you and I have, we stand on the shoulders of these men and women. who stood up, who stood up for the name of Christ. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? To not bow down to the counterfeit gods in our culture. To not give of our heart and our mind to the Caesars of our world. And maybe it's in your workplace, 
maybe it's some stuff in your family that this influence, this pressure seems to be there and you find yourself just kind of bowing down and giving into it. And perhaps for you, Acts 5 is this reminder that there's a different way. Reminder that to be a follower of Christ is to proclaim his name, stand up for his name, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit as he works in and through our lives, through our words, through our brokenness, through, through the messed up areas of our life, the Holy Spirit works through all of that to share the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and his name is above all names. Let's pray. Father God, we give thanks for this morning. And as we think about the book of Acts in chapter 5, uh, for us to um, kind of gain a perspective of who they were and the risk they were taking. And I pray that you would help us to receive a measure of that in our lives. And, and, and maybe it means to take a step forward somewhere, an area where it's a bit risky. In many ways, our knees are kind of wobbling and we're, we're kind of afraid. But, but help us, Lord, to do that and to be reminded um, that as a community of faith here, we don't do it alone. That together we are standing up in our respective areas, proclaiming the name of Christ. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that all hope and all peace and all salvation is found in only one name, Jesus Christ. And it's not in governments. It's not in, in er other areas of culture. It's found in him. And to his name we worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.